Hello, welcome to the Skies and Currents podcast. Today is Monday, December 11th. I'm Teresa and I'm here with Christina and we're going to talk about the week ahead. Hello, Christina. Hi, Tess. How are you? Pretty good, I think. I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yesterday was the, uh, no, no, not yesterday, Saturday night. So today's Monday, the 11th. Mm-hmm. Saturday night the ninth was um the venus jupiter opposition um Mm -hmm. and we talked about that in the last podcast about how that could be like a supportive um transit for resources um not not necessarily just money but sort of like something coming into your life that can support your future and your ambitions and you got your canadian oh yeah uh, that's right in the mail right yeah and it um, and it took a really long time because um, the, the government processing is backed up um, still because of uh, COVID because they shut down all their government offices for a long time. So it really could have come in at any point over the last six months. Um, yeah. But it came yeah. up that I got it that day. <laughs> Astrology. <laughs> I know, like, we're just going to start every episode with, like, a little snippet about why astrology is real. Um, But no, we won't do that. But I was just happy for you because I know you've been waiting. Tess is a Canadian citizen by birth, but you've never had a Canadian No, I've never. So I I had to get proof. And that process was just every, I mean, just backed up. I guess the whole process was just way backed up, which was fine because I don't need it eminently but it's still exciting to still exciting to get it <laughs> so you're a dual citizen now of canada and the united states yes i mean technically i always was but now i can get you know more official documentation passport residency all that stuff yeah. if you guys yeah. choose to move to canada yeah so cool it's very exciting yeah Yay, Jupiter and Venus. No, I was thinking about that a lot because Venus was in your first house, which is like yourself, your identity. And um, it was almost like Jupiter and Venus um, creating that opposition. Oppositions are sort of like a swell of energy sort of merging and sort of creating something together. And um, it's like Jupiter expanded your identity. Literally, like you were just an American, and now you're an American and a Canadian. Fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's really funny. I talked to someone else on um, on Saturday who also got like funding for their film. Oh, exciting! And, um, I had a horrible weekend, like the worst weekend ever, and um, I, so I was like, "Oh man, I was." super wrong about this venus fucking jupiter opposition like this shit sucks this is horrible and um but then i talked to you and i talked to um kevin and i was like okay all right okay it's not horrible for everyone it's horrible for me because i'm a <laughs> <rising. laughs> and i still have I'm mars sorry. The first <laughs> i'm sorry i know it's like but this is, and this is also why it's hard to talk about astrology in general terms right yeah. Because it's really a lot of stuff is going to hit us all. Right. Well, then I was thinking, like, because I had such a horrible weekend and I had to process so many, like, so much sadness, I did 
like I had Mars in my first house, just like fucking up my life. <laughs> um, sorry, Mars. I love you, Mars, but sometimes you're very difficult. Um, and but then I had Venus in my twelfth house, which is my inner life, you know, mm-hmm. um, receiving sort of like expansion from from Jupiter and basically like all Saturday night and Sunday, I just like had to go inside in meditation and like try to ask for help and ask for help and ask for help, like take the sadness, take this, the attachments and take, you know, all this. And, um, and so I was like, okay, I guess like my internal life is, is getting a little more resourced out of this or something. I'm, I'm getting tougher. Or I don't know. Um, but I feel like that was a stretch. But um, I'm glad that it was positive for you and for Kevin. And I hope it was positive for other people too in some way. (laughs) If you were a mutable rising sign, you may have been screwed regardless. But um, you fixed rising sign people. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, it was a nice day. We went to, um, to visit our friends in southern Missouri. And it's like a three and a three-quarter drive so just under four hours and it was like this beautiful beautiful morning where venus was so bright in the sky again like right you know with the crescent moon and we watched the sunrise so it was like this deep blue sky with venus and the crescent moon and then like the sunrise coming up orange um for most of the drive so that was really nice and then i took like the best nap ever at their house by accident (laughs) At Curtis and Christina? <laughs> yeah. Like Opal oh. and I fell asleep on the couch snuggling and I never nap because I never really get an opportunity to. And they're the kind of friends where you can do that at their house, you yeah. know, <laughs> and feel comfortable doing so. So it was really nice. Aw, that <laughs> is so nice. Yay. Yeah. It, Venus is so beautiful in the sky. Like I'm such a dork about stargazing and planet gazing but every time i see venus in the sky it just makes me so happy mm-hmm. i'm not usually up early enough to see the morning star venus so usually it's evening star venus i can see um when she's in that phase of her cycle but um but yeah it's very beautiful i get excited about it too because i, I feel like i know so little about the natural world that every time i can recognize something i'm like i know what that is yeah <laughs> It's Venus. It's Jupiter. It's it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, so Venus, Venus is pretty solidly hanging out in Scorpio for the rest, almost the rest of the month, I think, which is kind of weird. It kind of seems slow for her to be in Scorpio that long, but I guess we're already into the second week of December. So no, it's about right. So about three and a half weeks of Venus in Scorpio. Um, And today, actually, I think about right now, so Monday the 11th, around 1130, this is going to be the um, Venus trine to Mercury that we, I'm not trine, excuse me, sextile to Mercury that we discussed last week. And then after that, she's just kind of hanging out in the background for most of the month, which is she's still going to have a loose, 
you know, sign-based opposition to to Jupiter. So some of those resources that whatever resources came through this past weekend, um, my personally just begging God to help me not be sad resources. Um, <laughs> but whatever, um, they'll probably be useful to us for most of the month. Um, but the, the focus is kind of shifting um, starting tomorrow onto the retrograde of Mercury. So that's sort mm-hmm. of what I was thinking about talking about for most of this episode. Um, just because I don't always, I don't always think that people need like a date by date breakdown of the planets in the sky. Sometimes it's a little bit too micro focused to be really that useful. But this particular Mercury retrograde feels, I don't know, interesting and specific in a way where kind of like being able to hold the structure of it in your mind and keep some certain dates, keep an awareness of certain dates might actually be helpful for people to get through the next about, yeah, about three to four weeks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I, always write, I always write your dates down and I find them pretty helpful. I put them on my go, my like uh, uh, go, my calendar on my phone so I get alerts. Oh. Which is nice. Yeah. I'm glad that's helpful because even as an astrologer, sometimes I forget. <laughs> I'll be like, oh yeah, I talked about how this was going to be a shitty day and it is. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny how much that it's it's funny how much that helps too, because and you, well and I guess it's particularly helpful for me because sometimes when I feel like my kids are having a really hard day or we're having you you know it, it's like there's part of me that wants to goes into like solutions mode like okay how are we, you know it just feels like everything's bad and we have to fix a bunch of stuff and we have to make a bunch of changes. And then if you can look at the calendar and be like, Oh no, maybe this is actually just today. And it's just a hard day for everyone. And this is just what's happening. And it makes it easier to remember that last week we did not have these problems. And it's very likely that next week we won't have these problems. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So, I'm going to really try to post this in the morning tomorrow so that people have a chance to listen to it. But um, tomorrow is kind of a significant day. So Tuesday, December 12th, this is a big turning point in the month. We're going to get the new moon in Sagittarius. And that moon, um, the moon is currently already in Sagittarius, but the conjunction to the sun or the new moon that will be around three o'clock Pacific time next, um, tomorrow. Okay. And, um, that new moon isn't the most calm new moon. (laughs) So normally in an, in the new moon, um, cycle, we want to feel sort of like yin, quiet, internal. The moon is going dark. Um, it's a period of renewal. It's kind of um, the period of wiping the slates clean so that we can 
restart the cycle. Um, but this new moon is configured to Mars. Um, the moon's going to make a conjunction to Mars and then to the sun. So it's sort of like an irritated new moon. Like we should be feeling quiet and yin, but Mars is going to be like, no, <laughs> um, <laughs> we must, we must adventure. We must start a new project. We must cut something out of our life. That might be the most sort of, um, obvious in manifestation for a lot of people is this feeling of needing to get rid of something because mm -hmm. Mars sort of severs. Um, but Mercury is going to station on the same day and within the Mercury retrograde cycle, um, this particular cycle, Mars and Mercury are going to conjoin. So whatever comes up during this new moon, um, which can be something that comes up today, something that comes up tomorrow, something that comes up on Wednesday, um, that is related to this feeling of like, I need to just get rid of that. Um, I need to cut something out of my life. I need to start something afresh or go in a new direction. All of that is gonna come under review later in the month. So, mm -hmm. What the moon kind of looks like is like rash decision-making or um, like an abrupt choice, an abrupt movement or an abrupt excising. Um, and whether or not whatever sort of, be whether or not what we begin under this new moon um, continues, it's going to come under review. We're going to have to look at it more closely um, during Mercury's retrograde. Um, so this kind of marks almost like the real beginning of the December troubles. Um, like it, Mars has been in the square to Saturn since Thanksgiving, but we're kind of entering maybe it's not the new beginning maybe it's chapter two <laughs> we had chapter one troubles and now we're in chapter two troubles <laughs> um and tomorrow kind of marks that so do you think um because mercury is like thinking and speech do you think that those troubles are going to manifest as maybe more arguments or harsh words being exchanged or maybe confused ways of thinking or maybe like irrational, I guess more maybe like emotional or irrational ways of thinking. Um, you're not, yes. Yeah. Yes, all of the above. <laughs> um, I think that the first, okay, so Mercury is going to station retrograde tomorrow, December 12th, um, and he's going to station direct January, no, yeah, January 1st, 2024. So we get about three weeks of this. The first week and a half will be less like verbal trouble, um, less fighting, less um, disorientation. Um, and probably the, the second week and a half. So starting on the 21st of December, or actually starting on the 22nd of December, we get the more troubled like period of <laughs> the the retrograde that will probably manifest as more arguments, confusion, um, like negative thinking, um, 
But in, and this, that, that shift that happens in the middle is kind of what is making this Mercury retrograde so much weirder and different than most of them. Like people make a big deal about Mercury's retrograde, um, probably because it's one of the astrological configurations that we know the most about. Um, mm-hmm. or it's most in the sort of pop consciousness. And it makes sense that Mercury's retrograde is more in the consciousness than other planetary configurations because we're such a Mercury-driven culture, right? Yeah. Communications, technology, the internet, computers, cell phones, social media, all of that figures so prominently in our life and mercury rules all of those things Mm -hmm. um which is part of why i think we kind of obsess over mercury in this well and also why and why we're so sensitive to changes and how the flow of it is all going right exactly and and why people do notice it more you know Mm um so like in the big culture, always Mercury's retrograde can bring disruptions, communication disruptions, um, especially. So it's a terrible time to buy computers. It's a terrible time to make changes to your communications or technology systems. It's the period of time when the Zooms, you know, Zooms go awry and, mm-hmm. you know, everything goes awry. Um, everything has the potential to go awry when it comes to technology and communications. Um, But for each of us, Mercury is also going to rule two parts of our life, two houses. And this is how I typically like to think about retrogrades of any planet is look at the houses that they rule and expect that those parts of your life are going to come up for review Um, And that can look a lot of different ways. It can look like you're just thinking about that a lot and trying to shift some things mentally. It can mean that unexpected, abrupt, confusing occurrences take place in these parts of our life. Um, It can be that sometimes we start something in a misguided way that has to get reconfigured throughout the process of the retrograde. and so those, those parts of the life are Virgo and Gemini. So regardless of where Mercury is retrograding, in this case, is going to be half Capricorn, half Sagittarius. Um, regardless of the actual place of the retrograde, we always need to look also at Gemini and Virgo. So like for me, that's my seventh house of partnership and my 10th house of career. So this retrograde is like <laughs> always Mercury retrogrades can kind of like jangle both like big pieces of my life, you know, mm-hmm. for other folks, you know, Mercury might rule less um, prominent houses, but it's still important to, to look at the houses that they rule. And then you want to look at the houses that he's actually retrograding in because um, that's going to tell you more detail Um, specifically about how the retrograde is going to impact, like, it it usually it will impact the parts of the life 
that that it rules through the lens of the house that it's retrograding in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah. But um, what we would normally expect from a, a retrograde is that the first week and a half, and the and the and the days leading up to it, something goes awry, and then around the time of the Kazemi, um, we get some sort of. The Kazemi is the center of the retrograde when Mercury conjoins the sun. We get some sort of insight that helps us resolve the problems in the second half of the retrograde. (laughs) This particular retrograde cycle looks like it's not necessary. (laughs) It'll work that way. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what makes it so interesting. Um. So, okay, I have so much to say about this. And I don't want to, like, lecture the whole time. So does, do you no, have any no, questions no. about what I said? Okay. No, I'm, I'm curious about my placement, but I'm, I don't have to ask about that here. And I have to take up the time doing that. So I'll ask later. <laughs> I think, okay, well, let's do this. I'll talk about what's happening with this retrograde specifically, and then we'll look at your chart at the end. Okay. No worries. That. Okay. If... um. I think it might help people. I'm like, I should. Yeah. Okay. So tomorrow, December 12th, Mercury stations. He's currently in Capricorn. Um, He just had his trine to Venus. So what's happening is that Mercury has just moved out a couple of, like about a week ago, out of Sagittarius, which is a troubled sign right now because of the square from Saturn. He's moved into Capricorn and he's receiving this sextile from Venus. And Mercury is trying to like start a small part of our life afresh in some way. He's trying to shift the direction. He's trying to do... Um, like work out a problem by looking at um, sort of like a big systematic, this a big systematic approach to, to a part of our life. So Capricorn is Saturn sign. Capricorn wants to look at the structure of things. Like how is this operating and what is broken in it and how, how can we, fix that or bring it back into its like highest capacity operation right so mercury has has basically just tried to break away from a lot of trouble and try to fix a problem that's what mercury is doing right now and um tomorrow he's going to station and as he moves backwards (laughs) he's going to start thinking like, well, one of two things can happen. We're going to go deeper into the the problem that we're trying to fix and really look at it closely and really trying to come up with a, you know, broad scale solution. Um, Or he's going to start to realize that some, some thought process that he was going through over the past week was incorrect (laughs) Um, and that he needs to figure out a whole other solution. So basically Mercury is doing this deep dive 
into the, the structure of our life, like into some particular system and trying to say, okay, there's a problem here. How do we fix it? How do we go in a new direction? It's very, very, you know, I think it's a positive journey that Mercury has gone on. Um, but then the Kazemi is going to happen um, on December 21st. And that's going to be at degree one, or no, sorry, degree zero of Capricorn. So he will have moved from eight degrees of Capricorn to zero degrees of Capricorn. And at that Kazemi moment, Mercury, Mercury will probably feel like this question that he's been pondering has come to some sort of conclusion. Like he, either he figured out the problem or he figured out that his thought process was wrong or, or whatever it is. But then immediately on the 22nd, he moves back into Sagittarius. So it's like Mercury gets sucked back in to the chaos and complications that he was trying to escape and resolve in the first place, like upon moving into Capricorn. Um, and as soon as he moves into Sagittarius, he starts applying to Neptune um, by square. And that is going to throw all of the systematic thinking and all of like the careful judgments and careful processing that we've been doing, um, you know, since early December into disarray. <laughs> we'll be confused about everything. Um, our thought process will feel foggy. Um, it will feel dreamy. It will feel detached. Um, and as we enter in that to, into that fog, <laughs> Mars will be moving in to meet up with um with mercury so we have a foggy mercury moving into trouble and conflict oriented action oriented mars moving into a conjunction with mercury so basically starting from the 22nd until january 1st we get profoundly confused foggy Mercury moving into the planet of conflict and action, who, by the way, has been extremely frustrated by Saturn for several mm. weeks. And so Mars is going to try to push conflict and action through a very confused, foggy, um, disoriented thought process. So it's sort right. of like everything we were trying to fix goes completely to shit. Well, yeah. And this is one of those, it, it goes back to what you were talking about, where we're a very Mercury-oriented culture. And so a lot of our personal identity is wrapped up in what we're thinking and how we think, right? So if we're not feeling super solid with Mercury, there's a good chance that we might feel kind of vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? And kind of like not solid in ourselves. And then Mars comes in and goes, time to defend yourself <laughs> like <laughs> through conflict. And so, yeah, try yeah. not to, yeah. 
no, yeah, I think that's exactly, I, and I love that you put it that way because it's like a foggy mercury makes us feel vulnerable. I wouldn't have, have thought about it that way, but that's a perfect way to describe this retrograde is like for the next, I guess, week and a half, we're going to be trying to defend a way of thinking inside. Like we're going to be like making an argument trying to fix a system, trying to come up with a systematic solution to a problem. And we don't know if that solution is correct or incorrect at this point. The the retrograde doesn't tell us either. It could be the right path. It could be the wrong path. But we're going to be inside developing this argument, developing this path, developing this thought process. And then the Kazemi is going to come and we're going to be like, we were right. Like we figured it all out. (laughs) We are so awesome. (laughs) And that's the 21st. And then the next fucking day, all of it gets wiped away. And either it gets wiped away because it was fucking wrong and it needs to be permanently wiped away or it gets temporarily wiped away um, because we get sucked into some other activity, action, process that just takes us away from what we were developing. That could very easily just be like, it's the holidays, but that doesn't happen every holiday season. You know, like this, this is a very unique configuration. So what feels most likely to me is that something about the way we're thinking is not entirely is not entirely correct and we're going to have to be face we're going to have to go directly into facing our confusion or facing our incorrectness and we're going to feel confused about it we're going to feel vulnerable about it we're going to want to defend ourselves um we're going to get in fights about it um And then it's not until January that we can really start to see things clearly and move forward in a positive direction because Mercury will station direct January 1st and then Mars will move out of his square to um, Saturn on the 6th or 7th and into Capricorn. And Mars is super strong in Capricorn. This is Mars's strongest sign. So then you have a really, really strong, very um, committed, dedicated, um, disciplined Mars out of this, like out from under the oppression of Saturn, out from under the confusion of Mercury, collaborating with a clear, direct Mercury and able to sort of make progress together. So yeah, this this Mercury retrograde is, is honestly just much more of a doozy than most of them are because it's an interplay with so many other planets um, and because of the influence of, of Mercury, of, of, of Neptune, who just is gonna make an already confused, foggy thought process a million times worse. <laughs> yeah. Just like a storm, like a little storm. Yeah. We'll, we'll find out how uh, how much stuff in our yard is loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's this is also part of why um, 
we sort of have discussed and predicted for so long um, the the challenges of this holiday season because um, like imagine going into a family gathering feeling vulnerable about your own thought process feeling a little bit like you might be lost um, and not thinking clearly but wanting to appear as if you're thinking clearly um, and everyone else is in the same position. And then then also like an additional, you know, being like a desire to fight about it, right? Like an additional desire to be Mars about it, which is forceful, direct. (laughs) Forceful, direct, severing. There's a lot of severing with Mars. So Mars is the one who's going to be like, I cut this person out of my life completely. Mm-hmm. You are dead to me. Like <laughs> this person no longer exists. Like there might be a lot of just like Uncle Jack is dead to me, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's just and and I don't think it's just the holidays either. Like I think it's gonna I think it's gonna express a lot deeper than that because it's beginning quite a bit before Christmas and New Year and and it's not going to resolve until after. I think I think the holidays are likely to just add to the vulnerability and make yeah. that particular celebration feel more tenuous, but it's going to be about something deeper in your life. This is I think this is definitely a time where looking at your chart could be really helpful. Um because yeah, it's just it's going to really depend on where it hits you, like how it's going to, yeah, how it's going to manifest. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's this Mercury retrograde. I put some dates just so everybody can know what the dates are. I think it could be helpful. Um, December 11th, which is today, Monday, that's the Venus sextile to Mercury. Um, so that's the sort of like, the positive jump into a new thought process that might feel kind of good in the moment, but it's probably going to come under review later. Um, and then December 12th, that's the retrograde station at eight degrees of Capricorn. Um, December 18th, Mercury will trine Jupiter. So that's another point of like, Mercury is going to feel like, whoa, like I figured this out. Like this problem is, I'm a genius. Like I, <laughs> I know exactly what we're supposed to do. <laughs> you said that was on the 18th. That's the 18th. Yeah. yeah. Um, December 21st. That's the Kazemi. Um, that brings some insight. Um, that insight, again, it could be flawed insight or it could just be, insight that you can't put into practice until later in January. And then um, December 22nd, Mercury moves into Sagittarius and gets sucked back into a whole other set of problems. Um, Those problems could be related or unrelated to the thought process that Mercury was going through. Um, They could be it could be the set of problems that sent Mercury down the path of trying to f- figure out 
how to fix things. Or it could just be a whole other set of distractions that pulls you away from whatever your efforts were. Um, and then as soon so starting on the 22nd, Merc- uh, Mercury is going to start to square Neptune. And then um, December 27th, Mercury and Mars conjoin squaring Neptune. That's that like fighting over your vulnerable thought process moment. Um, they will then they'll separate and start going their separate ways, Mercury and Mars, and then Mercury will turn direct. So we get this really interesting kind of new year that actually feels like what we imagine new year to mean, you know? Like I've never really bought into that entirely before, like new year resolutions and a fresh new start or whatever, but this year maybe it actually. (laughs) Yeah, it does kind of seem like that. Like, I don't think it'll all come in on January 1st, obviously. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I thinking starts to straighten out. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think, It'll be, I think, I think the real feeling of beginning the new year, um, or the, the positive shift, I'm going to look at the actual date. I think I've said this before on the podcast, but of course I cannot ever remember anything. Um, but Mars moving into Capricorn, um, that will happen on. Oh, January 4th. Hey, that's pretty good. Um, (laughs) Can't wait for that. Uh, So the difference between Mars and Sagittarius squaring Saturn and Neptune versus Mars in Capricorn sextiling Saturn, that is like a world of fucking difference. Like that is... A huge huge difference and mars and sagittarius can be fun because sagittarius is a fun optimistic sign that's spontaneous and adventuresome but this season is just not the season for spontaneity and adventure because of the square from saturn and then with the mercury retrograde and and neptune squaring it's just it's not a very effective mars um but then as soon as he moves into Capricorn, it's like, forget it's like a huge upgrade on Mars. Like he just got whatever four mushrooms that made him have <laughs> <stuck>. <laughs> four Mario mushrooms, you know? <laughs> He's just gonna be like it's gonna feel like, okay, I can get to work now. Like I'm clear, I know what I need to do. Like it's gonna be a world of difference. Um so I'm really very excited for that January 4th moment. Um, and definitely worth looking at Capricorn in your chart too, um, to figure out what, what that means for you. Um, like Tess, you have Capricorn in your third house. So that's like communications and siblings and close friends. So it might actually be pertaining more specifically to like everyone in your community getting their shit together. <laughs> nice. I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, or like me, it's like money and, and resources. So 
that's like a pretty direct manifestation. If it's your first house, it's kind of like everything in your life starts to straighten mm-hmm. out a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be, it's, I think everyone's going to have a big exile, exhale in early January. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it'll be, I mean, again, I just think that it's going to be a really nice way to start off a year that looks like we'll have a lot of opportunities and we'll feel more optimistic and more motivated and more like, oh, we can actually build something. We can actually make the life we want or um, there's space for us to try things and there's space for people to come up to show up and help us, you know, as opposed to a lot of the last couple of years that haven't had all those qualities. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's funny because I was, I was listening to um, another astrology podcast and they were talking about how um, it, the new year is so stupid and it doesn't have any direct correlation to any astrological configuration. Like, you know, it's, it's not the solstice, it's not the equinox, it's not um, like the, the lunar Chinese. Yeah. yeah. It's not related to a lunar cycle. The lunar cycle is just like a random date. And um, and they were talking about how the solstice would be a much better new year marker. And I was like, normally I would endorse this message, but not this year. Like it would be a really, <laughs> really disorienting new year if it was on the solstice. And I love the solstice so much. And I think the solstice will be nice, like a lot nicer than Christmas, actually. It's just that the second, like the day after will feel like maybe horrible. <laughs> well, yeah. I have an intense birthday. It is. And I, I always do my Ekajati meditation. Not always. No, I think every year we yeah. have. I never commit to it. That's but then, then it, Yeah, so we do Ekajati on my birthday. But this year I'm going to have to be extra like, hey, tomorrow might feel bad whether you come or not. It's not <laughs> necessarily the meditation <laughs> making you feel. Ekajati meditations are so intense. Like, they are really intense. Yeah. I remember one year you you were here it was like a, such a weird christmas because my parents were in like out of the country and then you and jeffrey came with the kids and we had this like whole giant house to ourselves and we did the ekajati meditation <laughs> and um that was the first time i'd ever done it with you and not like live normally our meditations are over zoom mm-hmm. and i like literally melted down for like oh i'm sorry i remember I even that. No. <laughs> so like, come to the meditation it's gonna be great it's on my birthday it's gonna be fun <laughs> i was like shaking and crying for like 30 minutes afterward like just <laughs> like panicking <laughs> what yeah. does ekajata do uh tess she doesn't fuck around um <laughs> she she's about annihilation she's about um kind of fierce non-duality and um, annihilation of self-justification. Mm-hmm. And very hard lot. thing to get rid of, folks. <laughs> it really is. And it's one of these difficult things because it's been the, or- she, she's been the orientation of my personal practice. You know, there's a lot of other folks and personalities and things that I do and that I relate to very strongly, but, you know, she's like 
one of my main yeah. one of my main folks and she has been for um since 2013 i guess like 10 years now and one of the one of the difficult things is if you are trying to annihilate self-justification it, it's very difficult to continue to justify why you're doing the practice itself you know what i mean it's like it becomes this really very you you sort of have to really kind of sink into one like deeper meaning you know or trying to find meaning sort of beyond why like what you're doing and why you know because any reasons that you can come up with those are justifications so (laughs) so it becomes a really it really kind of has to like you kind of burn away enough stuff until you can kind of slot into a pocket of momentum and doing. And then the other thing that um, I've learned from her and from working with her is um, that in a healing process or in a spiritual development process, the stages are very important and they change. So you can't jump to step 10 because if you do that, step 10 won't work and you'll lose all of the benefits of the prior steps. So even though at the beginning, so even though it's like the ultimate goal is going to be annihilation of self-justification at the beginning, you still need a modicum, you know, you still need to retain some of that. And then you can kind of shed it over time as you develop. Um, and a lot of things, a lot of different spiritual practices work this way because at the beginning it's like i I think maybe detachment is a really good example because a lot of people hear about detachment because it's spoken about um as part of an eastern philosophy and americans are like yeah great idea i'm gonna detach from everything and you're like no 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 you're pretty detached already you're good what you actually need is (laughs) to start it's a different kind of detachment and it's the kind of detachment that you can never get to unless you start to acknowledge and engage with your attachments so you can't get to this idea you know the idea of attachment and a lot of what we think of as the actions of detachment are actually in themselves going to strengthen your unconscious attachments if you try to jump to them at the beginning so you have to acknowledge that there are going to be like different um stages and orientations along the way that are going to be necessary to get to the later goal and you just have to be willing to give them up when it's time so it has to be this i'm gonna hold on to this now and understand that later it's gonna go away and i'm gonna have to be without the tools that work and reorient myself um during a later window of time so it's i I mean again this is one of the reasons that um at intercurrence uh jeffrey and i decided that we really need everyone to have a personal connection with their own personality of their choice that they feel good about connected to yeah because like their own formula divine because you just i i don't think this would work for everyone i guess is my point like i love ekajati i think she's great i love the kind of work that i do with her but i would never be like this is the best way to go this is what everyone else should be doing 
Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and one of the reasons for that is probably something that you can see in people's charts, right? Like you can look at their chart and be like, you need someone, you need like a soft, nourishing mother figure in your life, or you need someone who's more Saturnian and a little bit more severe, or you need someone who is uh, more mercurial and more uh, of like a teacher and someone who's going to engage your mind in a certain way. And you might look at my chart and be like, well, you're looking at a lot of chaos, a lot of destruction, a lot of um, kind of inner Saturnian quality, not so much external Saturnian quality. So, um, yeah. Anyway, that's the Kajati. And I do have <laughs> what? Sorry, go ahead. You need annihilation. Yeah. I like, yeah, annihilation of self-justification um, with the long-term goal of fierce, fierce non-duality. Um <laughs> you know and she's also i don't know i mean yeah i mean it's it's hard because i'm like and she's great and she's the mother of the taras who's the mother of the buddhas so she's like the grandmother of the buddhas and she's got all these other wonderful things about her and she's a giant and she's fierce and she's wise um but i don't but again i know that that's not going to be the thing that everybody is gonna what's good for everybody and what's gonna nourish everyone and be most effective for them but i do offer so i every year um we do a it's just because it's my birthday i go a little self-indulgent and i offer like a public meditation on ekajati and what i usually ask her to do for other people is to help protect their spiritual practice so not to necessarily you know push them into anything uncomfortable personally, but to not to necessarily um, fully annihilate the self. <laughs> no, no, no. But but to because that's one of her roles, her traditional roles, is yeah. to protect your personal spiritual path. I have some okay, I have so many things I want to say about this because um while I was listening to you talk, it came I had a million questions and also thought about how perfect it is to do Ekadati on this particular solstice because of what you said like okay you're talking about how we feel vulnerable when our um our mercurial elements are getting called into question or come under review because mercury represents to a great degree our thought process right and a lot of our self-justification comes from our defensive thoughts mm -hmm. correct yeah. like our the mental fortifications around who we are why we do things why we make the choices that we make what it means who we are in the world so much of that is ruled by mercury so much of that is um thought oriented mm -hmm. and not to say thought is horrible or wrong right like um i think vishnu has a really strong uh relationship to mercury and all the vishnu um figures like mm -hmm. the avatars and that makes sense right because the avatars sort of like like christ or vishnu or shiva or um, shiva isn't traditionally vishnu but i you know, consider him to be an avatar. Yeah, um, yeah. Rama, Krishna, Rama. Buddha. Um, they all give us yeah. an orientation, right? 
um, in our spiritual practice, in the world, and that is going to help us orient our thoughts toward a path, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so not like like exactly what you said in your discussion. A lot of times we need a mental orientation yeah. to navigate the world. And that's one of the absolute conflicts of spiritual practice, like in a body in... Yeah would you say? Um, and so that's sort of like what you're saying about how you can't jump to path 10 of complete self annihilation without having an orientation and fixing your thoughts and, and, and looking at your attachments and engaging with it directly. Right. So if you were going to engage with someone like Ekajati, the first thing would be for her to get rid of I don't actually know if this is the first thing, but my guess would be one of the early steps would be to get rid of the worst, um, most like useless surface layer obstacle ridden stuff that yeah, unnecessary stuff that just creates, takes up space and causes us to be right in things we don't need to. Yeah. Yeah. She's not going to get rid. She's not going to take us all the way into, you know, (laughs) full (laughs) self annihilation and merging with like, uh, the non-dual divine. Um, so working with Ekajati, this particular solstice would actually be very useful because she would help us get rid of some of these self-justifying thought processes that we will have developed over the first week and a half of the Mercury retrograde. Um, and then go into <laughs> the chaos and confusion with a little bit more stability or a, a, a l- like less attachments to our or, thought process. Or at least make what will already be a little bit of a challenging time productive because you've you know set it up to be that way as opposed to just hard stuff coming up. It'll be hard stuff coming up and out. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean... We, once a year is good for most folks. And, yeah, and and again, yeah, this year might be a really good time to to do it. But yeah, it's like, but like you said, I mean, I don't know if anyone's had that extreme of a reaction. But um, no, but yeah, I don't. I mean, it can be, but it can be hard. Yeah, most people wouldn't like panic and melt down like I did. I, that was because I was in the middle of like a really big shift internally already That's and right. she just yeah. like poured gasoline poured on it. it we were all in the house <laughs> chaos um but this leads me to my second question which is related to Ekajati and also not but um more broad can we talk about these fucking men like who think they're talking about buddhism and like <laughs> and a spiritual practice and, and like meditation. And they really just want to detach from their emotions. Like can we talk about the problematic use of detachment in this like culture. Yeah. And it's really like, it's the translation of some Buddhist concepts to the West, like, and how fucked up they've gotten. And <laughs> I, I mean, I, so I, I have no, I have absolutely no authority to speak to Buddhism, you know, other than I can recognize where certain Buddhist concepts have been taken. You know, like I can see like the path, like, okay, this is a Buddhist concept that's been taken, but from, I have no authority from a Buddhist perspective. Um, You know, I I don't, 
I, I participate in a lot of their offerings that are open and I appreciate a lot of their philosophies, obviously. I think that probably, you know, I'm in love with the Vajrayana, absolutely in love with the Vajrayana, but I'm not, uh, rec you know, initiated, recognized. I don't even really consider myself to be like identify as a Buddhist. So I just want to be really clear about that. I, I'm not speaking from that perspective and I don't have any authority there. But um, it, it is still pretty alarming to watch uh, people take one concept, you know, out of, that's attached to a much larger story and then try to put it into their story. You know, a story yeah, that's yeah. very, very convenient for them because it allows them to bypass a lot of other things that they really don't want to deal with. Um, yeah, there's this idea that like, it is good to detach from your emotions and detach from your internal process. And then somehow the feeling of not being connected to what's going on inside of you makes you spiritually elevated or enlightened or something. It's fucking insane. This is one of the big issues that we have with, um, like our, our Christian orientation to other spiritual ideas. There's a, I think there's a lot of them, but one of them is this idea that it is, that spirituality is inherently um, morally or ethically superior. So any engagement with any kind of spirituality is good and better and right and righteous and should be done when there are a lot of different ways. I mean, and we know them, right? Like we know that there are extreme examples of what we would call cults that have done terrible things. And we can really clearly be like, okay, that's really bad, right? That's really, really bad. So, but what we do in our head is kind of discount them as like, oh, that's not really spirituality. That's like some other weird dynamic. Um, but there's also a million small ways that you can do that where you can, again, justify what you're doing and what you want to be doing and how you want to see the world and how you want to relate to people um, through a spiritual lens that implies moral authority. Um, and so it's, it, it, there's just basically any time that you can decide that you have, uh, that what you're doing is good, right, or ethical based simply on a concept you know, it's going to be there. It's just going to be a lot of problems. It's just going to be inherently problematic. But um, this is one of the reasons that I have not taught a formal meditation class before mm -hmm. is that a lot of people don't, the way that we use meditation now is not the way that it was traditionally used. Um, and so, you know, before there was a lot of preliminary work that you did to kind of make yourself a clearer vessel for the silence <laughs> and for yeah. the practices. Um, and the way that we use it in the West is more is often more of like a coping or, um, you know, trying to kind of come back to our humanity because our culture and our economic system and our political system and the way that we live our lives has kind of stripped us very, very, very far away from our humanity and made us very, very, very stressed. And so meditation is often used as a tool to help alleviate stress and kind of feel more connected to ourselves and to the world. 
which I don't have. I which is I don't think I don't have any complaints about that. That's fine. You know, it's good. We need we need all the help that we can get right now. But um, it, it's also used in some pretty unsavory ways, where uh, you can see one of the best examples I can think of of this is um, in different work environments where they try to teach people meditation at work because they know that it will make them more productive. So it's almost yeah. like if we just train people to detach from the amount of stress that we're putting on them without yeah. actually, you know, fixing anything or reworking what we're doing, we know that we can get more from them. Um, and it's, that's the, for, so for me, that's like maybe the, one of the most insidious examples, but there's a lot of other ways it can be used. Like you said, this whole idea of like, as long as you don't feel it, it's like, it's yeah. gone. And I think the other issue is that a lot of people don't realize that they are acting on their unconscious feelings and beliefs, whether they're aware of that or not. And so to further detach from that just means that those impulses get stronger in a lot of cases. And one thing that you've helped me to see like and realize in that process is like, okay, this is where you get so many like just complete out of control assholes and abusive people believing that they're like spiritually enlightened because they've disconnected from all their emotional material and then they you know experience something that made them feel like really big right and all that did was magnify all of the dysfunction inside of them and make them mm -hmm. feel that it's good and right <laughs> yeah and it's it's so common it's so common um and it's and you know what's what's interesting about it too is that it's actually if you're gonna be on any kind of spiritual journey or path or like there there are it's likely that you will have windows of like similar uh experiences of like yourself well you'll feel really elated or everything will feel really clear and you'll feel like i'm really getting somewhere i'm doing great and that is fine as long as you just don't um get too wrapped up in that you know and so if, as long as you just keep going from there and don't decide you're done, you don't decide to stop, you don't decide to only seek out those kind of specific experiences, um, it's going to be like a pretty typical thing because it's not hard for us to have um, very, very, very elated, you know, dopamine, rush, certainty, you know, experiences when we're in engaging with um the excitement of spiritual work and god and concepts and all this stuff you know i think that's one of the, the one of the easiest ways for people to tap into that excitement is like with this rush um so most of us will probably feel something like that at some point about something and it's just there's nothing wrong with it it's just not inherently productive you just kind of have to then continue yeah. to be like, okay, now what do I do with this excitement? Do I want to engage with this? Do I want to integrate more of this into my life? Is that just a one-time thing or, you know, whatever it is? Yeah. And I'm sure there's plenty of women that 
do the same thing that we we're discussing, but yeah, it's just, a, there's just a much more visible culture, I think around it, like, because there have been so many teachers that kind of slot into that <laughs> description. Well, I think people do it with psychedelics as well. And that yeah. is like yeah. a pretty, uh, I don't know, the discourse around psychedelics and the culture is pretty male centered and, um, like a male dominated field <laughs> psychedelic yeah and it's like okay yeah you you took a psychedelic and you had an experience but it just it's still just going to magnify whatever is inside of you already right. yeah <laughs> you know yeah. And, and uh and sometimes that can be very helpful, right? Because it can kind of lend insight to something else that you're experiencing about yourself that you can't always see, right? And then it's magnified and you can see it and you can be like, oh, okay, now I can move through it or now I can let it go. But what a lot of people do is the opposite, right? Where they're like, better attach harder to that thing <laughs> because... Yeah, I mean, so many spiritual systems are about clearing away the obstacles inside of you this quote-unquote self the that we identify with in this lifetime to get to the deeper light that is the everything right <laughs> um so this message of like listen to your inner voice listen to your you know all the it gets really complicated because you do have to listen to it and it's not inherently bad or good it just is mm -hmm. but we have to also we listen to it so that we can follow the path to the much deeper everything you know and yeah. getting to the everything we have to annihilate the self <laughs> so it's it's a very complicated process that people want to just like imagine can it's be very experienced or all, you know, all you have to, or all you have to do is take a drug or all you have to do is meditate 15 minutes a day or all you have to do is change the way that you're thinking about <laughs> you know it's just we we try to make it sound like it's just why isn't everyone doing this um but it yeah it's a lot of work it's a lot of work and it there are windows of it where it's a lot more work than reward um so there has to be some kind of like this is why i don't advertise very much because i feel like you need to have a really deep internal driver like a really deep intuitive sense that kind of brings you into the work um, because there's nothing I can say about it that's salesy and 100% accurate. Like I would never come into telling everyone like, it's gonna feel great all the time, we're all gonna ascend, it's just gonna get better and better and all you're gonna have to do is take some supplements and change your thinking. <laughs> we're all, you know, like I, I would never say <laughs> no. Well, it's, I think it's a, okay, so last night I was reading, um, rereading The Odyssey, um, primarily because I am working on this project about Mars and I want to, uh, it's like place that figure in a bunch of different mythological settings. And so it's kind of like rereading The Odyssey as one of the like, I don't know, portals into Greek, the Greek mythology or whatever. And the the beginning of the Odyssey is like all the gods are um, 
talking about Odysseus and his plight and Poseidon's pissed off at Odysseus and Zeus is like, what's your fucking problem? And um, Pallas Athena is like Odysseus's, uh, I guess, benefactor in the heavens at the moment. She's like, he's a good guy. You know, he's always helped us out or he's always honored us. Like, what the fuck? Why, why are you leaving him on the island with this crazy Calypso or whatever? And, um, and she gets permission from Zeus to go uh, talk to Odysseus's son and tell him to dispel all the suitors, um, to get rid of the people that are trying to remarry his mother, and to go find his father. And um, Pallas Athena shows up on Ithaca, um, dressed as you know, in a disguise as like a merchant or whatever, or someone who. Uh, Odysseus knew and she's a stranger you know she's she's appearing as a man and a stranger amongst this horde of people that have taken over Odysseus's home and they're the suitors and they're drunk and they're doing whatever they're doing but Odysseus's son like immediately sees Palestina and knows he doesn't know who she is he doesn't know that she's a god but he knows that he has to talk to her and that it's important. And, you know, he passes through the horde of people that are in his home, none of whom recognize her, this stranger as anything of importance. Odysseus' son grabs her, takes her to the table and is like, what do you want? And like, what do you, what do you have to tell me? And I feel like that is sort of, the motion that the soul has to make when it wants to do spiritual work is like, you see it and you know it that you need it, you know? And it's like, there's something propulsive inside of you that recognizes the light or recognizes the divine in something. And is like, I see that this is what I need. I see that I need this message. And it's like, how do you advertise that? You can't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's I mean, well, and this is, and it's also very hard because we don't have, and this is one of the other issues with the way that we've borrowed a lot of Eastern concepts is that we don't have fixed definitions for a lot of these words. So, you know, you and I, when we talk about spiritual work, there's an understanding as to the ass kickery involved, right? (sighs) But that doesn't mean that spiritual orientation or spiritual practice that isn't that kind of work is not real or invalid. You know, if you're the kind of person that's just looking to forge that connection, you know, and to feel connected with something much bigger than yourself also well with, you know, also fits into that definition fits into that category. So, yeah, so it's really hard to advertise both that um, it's not all the same thing. Yeah. It's not all going to take you to the same place. Whatever you've heard about this is probably oversimplified and overly optimistic um, because that's the way that the mainstream likes to talk about most things. Um. Well, yeah. And it's also the kind of thing where like any level of engagement with the divine is going to ultimately be helpful for you, but it's not going to look the same or be the same for everybody and it doesn't have to take you to self annihilation to be good. Right. It doesn't have to at all and it I, and you can 
it doesn't even have to be the same tradition like the same doesn't the tradition doesn't have to be the same um the way that those different paths can look for the individual within the tradition can all look very different um not a one-size-fits-all relationship like like all of our relationships so yeah well <laughs> the moral of the story the moral of the story is don't detach from your emotions and think that you're enlightened <laughs> that's and, how this all started <laughs> and, try, and try not to fight too much about you know ideas i guess and i know that's really hard because we're in a window of time where it's like we're trying to change the ideas we're trying to figure out how we're going to change the things based on bad ideas and move them into good ideas and that feels like you should yell at your uncle and that's the solution but you know i guess really thinking about what the goals of those ideas are rather than just the adoption of that idea and the spread of that idea being the goal yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, because bad ideas can be really powerful. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, good ideas can be really powerful, too. But the thing is, is that it's like the idea itself isn't the thing that makes something it. happen. It's like the thing that happens that is then justified by the bad idea has to happen. And so you have to think of that on the other end of the spectrum too. Like, okay, the good idea, something has to follow the good idea. Something has to happen. It right. can't just be that we're all adopting the good idea. Um, yeah. Well, December, 2020, 2023, <laughs> let's just get through it. Let's just try to, you know, be as good to each other as we can um, until the end of the year and as good to ourselves as we can and not take anything too seriously and don't attach too strongly to any ideas that come up at this period of time because they'll probably have to change. And I think it's a good idea for assuming that we're not communicating well, you know? Yeah. So, so if it feels like you're misunderstanding or there must be a misunderstanding there's You're a good chance. This is a window of time where there's a good chance. That's probably true. <laughs> yeah. All right, Tessie. Well, I love you. Thank you for doing this with me as always. Um, you can find my website at um, skiesofgrace.com. Tess is at innercurrents.com. Um, you can find our podcast on iTunes or Substack. If you join the Substack, you'll get invited to... Um, a monthly Q&A, live Q&A, um, and to live meditations. And what else? Uh, oh, yeah, we're selling gift readings this year. Tess and I are going to do um, year ahead, 2024 year ahead readings for folks. We're going to do them together. So it'll be super fun. It'll be two hours long. I'll look at your chart. Tess will look at your, your year ahead internally, and then we'll, we'll collaborate you know, on her insight and my insight from the chart and kind of like try to join forces to give yeah, we'll some- go, We'll go yeah. month by month and look at like everything that we've talked about, right? Like all these kind of big changes and how they're gonna affect you personally. And then I'll look at what that looks like it will be more specifically. And we'll either tell you 
good time for this or a bad time for this or this is something you can do that will make it easier or more opportunistic or more helpful. Super fun. One of the most fun yeah. things to do. Well, that's, that's funny. I was funny. I was talking to Tess the other day about um, like tarot and how, you know, tarot is good and fun or whatever. Like neither of us have anything against tarot, but neither of us really use it. And um, <laughs> a lot of astrologers use tarot to sort of like divine more specific um yeah, divine more specific interpretations of astrological configurations because astrological configurations configurations tend to present like a whole spectrum of possibilities within the them thematics of the configuration. And like, so a lot of astrologers use tarot to go like one step deeper. I'm like, I just use Tess. <laughs> I just asked Tess. <laughs> Tess, why is this mean? <laughs> <laughs> what, what is this specifically going to look like? Can you help me out? Is it going to be this or this? And she's like, it'll be this. And I'm like, great. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I have very little recollection of this. So I always, I'm like, well, I hope I was right. I hope I was right. <laughs> I don't just use tests. I, I very gratefully request. Oh, no, no, I don't, I don't mind. I, I don't mind being the tarot cards. I'm <laughs> not at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right well i love you i hope you have a good monday i'll try to get this posted early on tuesday morning okay i love you too thank you so much see you soon bye, bye.